2: Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas with Urban Health Weekly, and we're doing something a little different this week. I decided to reach out to my friend who is a former, recently retired patient advocate for one of Brooklyn's largest healthcare systems. And I decided to reach out to him because I recently read about some developments with transvaginal Um, ultrasounds, and then after talking to another friend of mine about a situation that she had where a doctor just didn't listen to her complaints, I figured, you know, it's time that people took matters into their hands more, and what better way to start than with a patient advocate like yourself. Just give a brief overview of what you do and, and what you are to a patient.
3: The role of a patient advocate is really the role representing speaking for and on behalf of the silent ones. Those who are sometimes mortally afraid to speak to the providers, or at times they are maybe cause of their financial situations or lack of insurance. Sometimes they, they do not know how to breach the, the lack of care. And so, they solicit the the aid of a patient advocate to help them uh, with the process. And in so doing, you educate them as to how they can acquire care. Some patients are also, they may feel indifferent as to what the doctor is suggesting. And because two of their maybe immigrant status Uh, or how they're going to pay the bill. They're afraid. They're afraid to ask questions. They're afraid to come and receive treatment. And so we are like the sounding board. We are like the bridge. Uh, We stand in the gap for those patients to facilitate and to, to see how best we can bridge that gap for care.
2: So how do you, so how do, patient, how, how do patients encounter you? Like what's the first how, is, it, is it through a complaint first, or do they ask or, or when you get into the, the hospital or the emergency room or the clinic, do they tell you up front when they give you the patient Bill of Rights? How, do, how, how, does, how does a patient find out about someone like yourself?
3: Every patient who uh, is admitted generally or enter a facility in the state of New York, should receive a copy of the patient bill of rights. That, that booklet or that print out, according to facility, have a different way of presenting it, mm-hmm. must have accompanied with it uh, the locality of the department, other representatives and a contact number. Mm, so right. that it's incumbent upon every facility, healthcare facility, to provide every patient with this information there are some facilities that camouflage or try to get them to the AOD or administrator on duty or some supervisor and um, somewhat hide the fact that patient relations exist because um, it is and should operate as an independent office although oftentimes the uh, advocates are pressured to be silent. Yeah, why is something like
2: that happening? Why would they silence? Why would a patient be silenced?
3: One one have to understand that the patient advocate is a voice, and it's the voice of the patient. Right. And he or she knows the underhand dealings. He, know, he or she knows the inside out of the operation of the facility that he or she works. Right. And um, because of that, it makes it easier for the advocate to goes to the powers that be to get things done. Oftentimes, they are disliked. And again, oftentimes, they are right because they make the, the transition smooth Okay, or smoother.
2: So if, if I'm a patient visiting the clinic or the hospital, who tells me about you? Like, I understand. I, because, I, for example, I always get a patient bill of rights. It's part of, like, the packet when you're filling out and you're signing out stuff. But no one has ever said to me, and by the way, you know, uh, if you have any issues, they're quick to send you a, a survey, let's say, but no one ever, and I don't know if, if that's even something that comes from your department also, like when you get these surveys, how was our service? But no one ever says, and if you have an issue, we do have a patient um, advocate or patient guest relations office that you can refer to. If you're not an informed patient, how do, how does one find out or larger if you're in the community and you're afraid to 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 have care because your status or you're afraid well, I don't have the money like I just saw this uh, incredible clip of this woman who her leg went down in the, the in between the train and the tra- and the the, the, the platform yep. and everyone is trying to rock the train to try to free her leg and she keeps screaming, "Don't call the ambulance! It costs too much money. Don't call the ambulance! It's three thousand dollars." So she's more concerned about the bill she's going to get. She doesn't want to go to the hospital. She's more concerned about the bill she's going to get and maybe the care she's going to get at the hospital than the fact that her leg is trapped between the train and the. So how does how does how do you bridge the gap? How do how do patients? get in contact with you? How do they find out that you even exist?
3: Now, every every healthcare facility should have a patient advocate.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, they are under different titles, Ombudsman, okay. advocate, patient representative, mm-hmm. all doing the same work. However, sometimes there are places that assign the function to social workers, or oh. you respect the social workers, uh, their the slant of advocacy could be a little different because their function, basically, their training is for social work. The, oftentimes, too, you find cases like that woman who got heard by the train shouting, don't call the ambulance. Although her, her life depends on it. If you do check back with her background, she's an undocumented resident. Mm. And uh, cannot afford health care insurance, cannot afford health insurance, cannot afford to pay the bill. Mm-hmm. And hence, you find uh, a lot of the city facilities, um, New York City, that is, mm-hmm. do have some programs where they can be accommodated. Uh-huh. But within the bill of right itself, mm-hmm. no one should be refused care regardless of their ability to pay.
2: You, you come in to bridge the gap. Yes. So- by, by pointing them to like services and um, ways, definitely. Mm-hmm.
3: so when when you when you hear that a patient comes to you, oftentimes they'll tell you a friend told them, mm-hmm. or an employee will oh, tell yeah. them. Um, mm-hmm. Not many employees. Uh, um, some employees will pick up, uh, call a supervisor or manager for you, but the managers know that they must inform patients of. The Department of Patient Gas Relation, Patient Relations, and that is very important. So, oftentimes, too, advocates walk the floors and walk in areas to let people know who they are and why they exist. So, meeting them and greeting them is a form also of educating them where they are and how they are available or accessible.
2: So you gave the example. So going back to what you were talking about, you know, the one intoxicated patient being given IV fluids while the other one uh,
3: is... T- left uh, to get sober You yeah. Linux whenever he or she
2: can. So then, right. So then so then, what do you do? Like what, so then what, so then how do you as the patient advocate step in? So you find well,
3: out... I, I, I have had times and occasions when I, um, I would have observed Mm -hmm. And then I will go to the primary nurse and find out, well, what's happening to this patient? And um, we also have access to review charts. Mm -hmm. So you can go review the chart and uh, see what was, how the patient had been treated. You can never, an advocate could never tell a provider how to treat a patient. Mm -hmm. But you could show the disparity of care. Mm -hmm. You could also inform them uh, that you don't think you, you cannot say no or you will not say no because you're not a clinician again you do not think that that method of treatment or that attitude is appropriate or correct mm. with that being said you go to the provider the supervisor who are or not generally the administrators clinical administrators mm. and you from the time you go to a, a clinical administrator they know you mean business and they will either take the case over or instruct their provider to Change. uh to to follow uh this plan or change the patient to another provider mm. because again they cannot they cannot direct the doctor to treat the patient the way they want not even a judge can mm. you know
2: but it, but it's still up to the clinician if they they're treating the person so then other than going to the supervisor then it really is at the clinician level to
3: it rests in the clinician's lap because the clinician holds the license. Hold the, the and uh, they will let you know I have to protect my license, whatever that is.
2: Right. So it sounds like a little bit of a pickle then. Because... At time, no, no, but any time... Uh, but if they say, screw you, I'm, this, is, this is what I think. I think patient A deserves the IV fluid, but patient B should just sleep it off. Yes. Then there's really nothing you could do because... But
3: generally, any time an advocate is involved, um, the approach and the care generally changes Mm -hmm. to the the level that it should always have been Mm -hmm. or to some um, respectful continuation of care. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And there are other alternatives like... um, when it is far gone, sometimes you let the patient know that they, they can call the state and um, no, no provider really want the state in their business. No facility want the state in their business.
2: Right, 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 right. right. Um,
3: but we have to be fair and um, we are obliged to give uh, the patient the information of the possibility of they call in the state or joint commission, which okay. is the accrediting company or commission yeah agency for the healthcare facility in question. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, so let's say I am a pregnant woman and I'm concerned that the obstetrician that I'm seeing, he or she is saying things to me that I feel like are not in line with my values um, or I feel like they're not taking any of my concerns seriously. So then somebody says, so I go to the patient advocate. I say, look, I'm, you know, I don't feel like Dr. So-and-so really uh, is exhibiting my best interest. What do you do?
3: Well, anytime a patient feels that they're not comfortable with a provider of care, they can request to change that provider. There might be an, um, there might be an obstacle, if it is your primary doctor, because in, in this time of managed care, your managed care uh, agency, uh, your insurance managed care agency, would normally first have to reassign you to a different doctor as a primary care provider. Mm. But when you are seeing a specialist um, uh, like a, a GYN or OB, uh, you can change those without going to. To the um. Your your insurance, because the only re- doctor of record is your primary doctor, PCP. Right. 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 That's a doctor of record, and right. so um.
2: But a gynecologist is a specialist, so it's
3: a specialist. Talk- so you can go to any specialist. So I often tell patients you can make a request. You have two choices. You can make a request to change that doctor in the facility, or you could go to another facility, or another. Um, if it's on an outpatient basis, another provider outside of the, the care that uh, person that you are seeing currently.
2: So you would even direct them away from the from your facility. You're saying
3: generally, generally no. Uh, but if they feel that they are that they are being not treated right the way that they should and they're not comfortable for the patient's best interest? Yes, I would.
2: If if there wasn't another provider in that same department that you felt would best meet their needs.
3: Yeah, you see, uh, the patient advocate must be true and fair to the patient at all times. Mm -hmm. You have a commitment to the facility, yes. But remember, you are independent. Mm -hmm. Being paid by the facility, but you're an independent factor.
2: Talk about the first, talk about a a time, a a case, where it was like that made you the most proud of your profession and you helped someone and it was like so life-changing for them and you just like glowed from the
3: experience. There are many of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, One one of my most touching moments is when um, this patient Body was becoming very toxic because the patient had um, gangrene. I can't remember the correct terminology now. So the patient's leg had to be amputated. Mm -hmm. The patient was there, like in the hospital, for like three months after the doctors expected that that the the leg be taken, the leg be amputated, should have been amputated. One of the doctors came to me and said, I need your assistance. Can you help me with this patient? And I said, I'll see, what is it? And he told me the story about the patient is lying in bed and um, the patient's life could be saved if the patient, even at this late stage, have an amputation. The patient happened to be from the Caribbean island. Mm -hmm. And I went to the patient and we got into a conversation. The patient was feeling a little sick, but I started to see a smirk on the face, a smile like I am comfortable with this individual. And I said, but I came to you because there's an an urgent matter that you need to address and apparently no one told you. So then I asked, I said, did did the doctors tell you what's happening with you? She said, no. I said, well, um," and I went over this story about, well, you're not in the best condition right now. You're close to death's door, but I'm I'm not the one to tell you that you're about to die because that's the hand of God. But, um... You're like my mother and I wouldn't want you to die. She said she never had a son. And she felt proud of someone claiming Aww. to be, you know, her child. Aww. And the lady graciously accepted eventually and um, is she still had her leg like, like amputated. And uh, fortunately, the lady is still alive today. Lovely. Uh, some time ago, later on, she still came back to me and um, she wasn't able to afford prosthesis and I uh, was able to get uh, connect or facilitate getting a prosthetic piece for her or leg for her. And so that's one of the happy moments. Oh,
2: huh? that's a good one, man. That's a good one. Tell me about one that was um, a great disappointment to you.
3: Uh, It is always a disappointment when you go to administrators and they defend the staff in the wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. And um, that kind of a political connectivity um, that their staff can do no wrong puts the patients and their colleagues in such a place Mm -hmm. uh, that um, it doesn't make a good work environment. It also said that if I am to be a patient there, that is the treatment that I will receive. When you see an administrator harboring wrong, to me, that is criminal.
2: Hmm. Can I tell you a story? I went to um, an emergency room. It wasn't your uh, emergency room. This was um, maybe like a couple of years ago. This was pre-COVID because she had an air infection and it was like the middle of the night. Her air was hurting. And so I took her to the ER at one of the facilities our experience was fine but i have to tell you that when a child was there with his parents um he was like you know maybe like he he couldn't have probably a tween no younger than 10 no older than you know 13 Uh, yeah and he was trying to explain to the provider that he was in pain and the provider was badgering him like oh you're in pain what kind of pain are you in oh yeah you're in pain what kind of pain and so the kid is freezing up because he's a kid and he's not expecting to be badgered by a doctor and he's in pain and his parents I didn't think his parents spoke English so they were not really sure what to make of the situation and he was just like shaking and like trying to describe for this, his hands were shaking. He's trying to describe where the pain is as best as he could because he's a kid. And I have to tell you, D I was so disgusted. I couldn't believe that, that that had happened and that no one had stepped in and said anything. I looking back, I probably should have said something to somebody about that, but I was just so stunned like, I had never seen such a nasty, like, a, such an outward display of, like, disdain for a patient, a child, ever in my life. So I, I didn't, like, I, you know, it just took me a while to, like, process it. But what happens in a situation like that?
3: No. um in the
2: middle of the night, by the way. This was, like, 2, 3 in the morning.
3: It is it out of that kind of attitude that
2: mm-hmm.
3: pediatrics receive uh the kind of care that pediatrics receive that a new bill of rights was instituted for parents so there's now a parent bill of rights and uh it gives the parent the right to represent the right to be present during the care the right to an interpreter Uh, so you know if although the patient is speaking the patient is a um, is 13 or under 13 and is speaking the language, English and language. His
2: parents, and his parents were present, but they didn't speak English.
3: I they think did not speak
2: Creole. It is incumbent. More like they had a Creole person.
3: Yes. It is incumbent upon the provider to, cre- uh, to create the availability or to obtain assistance for some language. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when English is a second language, also. Remember, and the person who wants their language in the state of New York, it should be given. Let me tell uh, you, I've, to the seen deaf patient.
2: Where I've seen a lot of cases where patients are just sitting around waiting because there's no one who speaks Spanish or Creole or, or, or Russian. They're just sitting around waiting because they're like, they have to go to some department and find somebody who's going to come and it's tough, especially like in an emergency room situation where a lot of these, these patients go, you know, for care because they don't have insurance.
3: Very much so, and um, the language, if I am if I am not mistaken, it is one of the things that the federal government will get involved very easily if you complain. Because language must be available. If you're a deaf person, as I was alluding to earlier on we should be able to provide you with an interpreter, with an interpreter, because that's your form of language. That's the way you communicate. You must be respected and it must be provided in the state of New York. Oftentimes, um, people will just want to pull their friend and pull their neighbors. No, it must be someone who is competent To transfer medical terminology because not everyone will be equipped with that know how of transferring medical, um, translating medical terminology. Mm -hmm. That's why it's preferred to have certified interpreters. Mm -hmm. Do our hospitals have have that? Do
2: they have interpreters on staff?
3: There are some facilities that employ translators. There are some departments in the city that employ uh, interpreters. There are, however, other facilities that do not have interpreters, they have uh, agencies and um, they will book appointments or so for the deaf Mm patients, as the case may be. Now, other, other people do facilitate their countrymen, their fellow country person, with some assistance of uh, interpreting for that person or that patient.
2: One last question for you, Dee, and then I know you have to go. Um, so, in a large healthcare system, obviously your department exists. But, like, let's say I go to a, a clinical setting, would I find an equivalent department or person? Um, it, let's say I went to like um, an NYU Langone or a Mount Sinai, or um, you know, like these little clinics that. Yes. Would
3: you Brookdale, Presbyterian, or all, all those, those bigger? Those are bigger centers, and so obviously, right? You know what I'm saying is they all have their satellite uh, right. units, outpatients there. Okay. Wherever those smaller units are. Right. Uh, generally, um, they can speak to the manager and or ask a request for the patient relations number. Generally, they don't have a person there, they are, but you can ask the number and um, the patient relations department will respond, you know, how they will call that department over there or the facility might be able to pro- would provide transportation for representatives to get to that site as fast, quickly as possible. So there are different methods for a patient advocate to communicate with a patient uh, who's outside of the hospital setting Mm -hmm. and is part of that system. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, that's good to know. Listen, it's really important for for patients, especially if you're like a a timid person or uh, you don't feel comfortable, you feel um, overwhelmed by... The whole medical machine. It's important that people like that know about your role and your department in the hospital because it could mean the difference between them having excellent care or no care at all. So um, I want to thank you.
3: You're most welcome because I, 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 although I'm retired, I still make, make, make myself available to individuals, people. Why? Because the education could never stop. It's a continuous education to the masses. And one less person that is informed is still one less from the community at large.
2: The Biden administration announced in mid-December that the government would provide free COVID tests and free N95 masks. What do you think about the timing?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, that was an incredible, challenge that they had. And then I think, I'm sure it was a lot of planning that they had mapped out to what the rollout would look. One of the unknown variables was the Omicron variant and what that would look like. It kind of took us by storm with the surge in cases and the cases in the hospitalization. So I think that kind of made the the timing a little bit um, less advantageous and a little bit more challenging on the supply chain. Mm -hmm. But the decision making, they had to go into it. I'm pretty sure they probably thought that out It was mapped out, but didn't expect for the Omicron variant to hit like it did.
2: Well, so like, for example, in New York, cases are already subsiding. Is it too little too late? Or do you still think so good can be done here?
1: No, I think it's still, I think it's a lot of good that can be done because at the end of the day, it's a mitigation tool anyway. So if, if we can get everyone wearing, and now the guidance is wearing not just a mask, but a better type of mask, like the N95 style of mask and then testing regularly, which is what they're trying to roll out. Um, I think that's gonna help us ultimately, you know, get over the hump, which is what we, we all wanna see.
2: Right. Can you talk about what makes the N95 mask the preferred mask for this arm constraint in circulation? Are there any limitations to them?
1: Sure, no, great. Right. That's, that's such an excellent question. And I think now, you know, before March uh, 2020, not many people even knew what an N95 was. And now we're all kind of, everybody knows what an N95 and a KN95, and we'll talk about both, but what makes it different and why it's recommended to wear? you know, the, the initial guidance is if you could wear any type of facial, uh, facial protection, then it's better than nothing. But the N95 is actually a genius, the way that it is designed. The way, uh, the what is overarching goal is to trap particulates, uh, particles, So COVID is an airborne uh, virus, so it spreads every time we talk, we cough, we laugh. It's just airborne pathogens and particles are are flying around. So the fabric of the N95 um, is designed to catch it. So if it's airborne. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile,
0: we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: And it and it catches a the fabric, then it means it's no longer airborne. And what makes the N95 such a a great mask is that so you have is really good at catching large particles. And, medium, and small particles. Large particles typically travel at a straight line. So when it hits the fabric.
0: Summer is right around the corner and you know what that means. Cooking out, diving in, and soaking up a whole lot of sunshine. The Home Depot has everything you need to start your summer right. Upgrade your cookout game with Traeger grills and smokers. Then gather around a new Hampton Bay patio set with family and friends. It feels like Memorial Day at the Home Depot with savings on summer fun. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.
1: It attaches to it and is no longer airborne. Um, small particles kind of zigzag, eventually still going to hit the fabric. What makes the medium particles a little bit more challenging is that it, it kind of, it doesn't travel straight or in a zigzag motion. Is, it almost goes with the flow of air. So it could kind of go like this and it can miss it. So the last layer of an N95 has an electric um, static-like filter to it to where it's 10 times, it's 10 times stronger to, to attract that part, that particle that's, that's, that's flying around. So that's what makes it overall N95 great. And the N95 uh, means that it, it filters out greater than 95%. So from an efficiency standpoint, that's what you want. You want something um, that's going to do its job. Now, what makes an N95 an N95 compared to a KN95 is, I'm going to show you. So, from the naked eye, these masks look identical. Would you you agree with that?
2: Right. All right.
1: Can you tell which one is a KN95 style and which one's an N95 style? I can't tell. All right. So, N95 styles have headbands, so it'll go over my head like this. Oh, wow. Okay. KN95s have ear loops. So, the... Niosh to have it NIOSH approved National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, it has to be a headband style mask. And I want you to think about it like this. So you're wearing glasses. If you go into a swimming pool right now and you go into water, will water get into your eyes with your glasses that you have now? Of course. If you wear swimming goggles, would water seep into your eyes?
2: No, they wouldn't.
1: And it's because of the seal, because of the headband seal versus the earloop. So this is a terrible analogy, but it just gives no, you- No, no,
2: it's a great analogy. It gives you a
1: visualization of why the N95, because it creates a tighter seal around your face, which makes it harder for particles to travel, you know, seep in under it or around it. Um, so
2: why is it then that the KN95 is so much more available on the market than the N95?
1: Yeah, that's, we get that question a lot, right? So a couple things. this The KN95 style, which we call them, and we're going to get into that because that's a whole other thing now, is that even from the CDC, I think the guidance is where an N95 when available or a KN95. The 95 is in both. It means that they're going to filter out greater than 95%. In fact, if you look at the testing data, a lot of times it's 98, 99%. But then we would have to get used of hearing N99s and it would, it would confuse people. But... The earloop loop is a whole lot easier to manufacture. You can literally buy a machine for 120k and start producing um, 200,000 of these a day if you wanted to. And they're also because oh. it's an ear loop, there's no standard to it. So for N95 to be NIOSH approved, it has to go through it has to go through a rigorous like standard, you know, like testing standard, for it to actually get into like a healthcare uh, that type of environment. Or KN95s, there's no standards. And then the the confusion around the KN95s is that that is a Chinese term. So U.S. companies don't use KN95 nomenclature anywhere. So the KN95 is a Chinese term. We don't use it. Um, One of the largest, if not the largest, independent reviewers, um, ECRI, they reviewed that seven out of ten KN95 masks fail a filtration test. So that means that literally they could put anything they want on the bag. That means it's going to work. And whereas U.S. made products and KN95 or ear loop respirators, they, they take it through the same filtration testing as the N95. So you know what you're getting is going to work. But the confusion is if you look at this mask and I know you can't see it, it doesn't have KN95 printed on it anywhere.
2: Right.
1: But so the nomenclature doesn't say KN95. So what happens is, is we as consumers, when we get them and you're looking for that KN95 as a validation of it being real and you don't see it on there. You're like, I didn't, get the real, I didn't get the real thing, but in fact, you're getting American-made one that's better because it's actually been tested. So that's part of the education piece is that we have to, like, just because you don't see the nomenclature of k 95 doesn't mean that it's not a KN95. They look identical. They look identical, but it's just a... It'll say made of America. This is a D95. We got one called a Freedom Air. We got one called a Comfort Fit. So they can name them whatever they want, but it, it is causing confusion with everyday consumers.
2: Actually, I'm sorry, what's the D95?
1: That, so it's just a manufacturer. So it's a manufacturer that we uh, that we work directly with uh, called Demitech based out of Florida and they started making, we're one of the first distributors, but they started making uh, NIOSH approved N95s in 2020 and then they started making a line of the ear loop respirators. So instead of saying KN95s, we'll say Earloop loop respirators. And then since their name is Demitech, they just named theirs D95.
3: Because there's no standard,
1: but you don't have to put, you don't have to put the same name on it. You can name it whatever you want. You know, we have one that's called. This one is the um, Freedom Air, is made from a manufacturer in Ohio. We have one that's called the Comfort Fit. So the names are different. Sometimes they'll say made in the USA. Sometimes they won't have anything. But that not having the K printed on it causes confusion in the marketplace. So that's part of the education piece that we're getting to. Because we'll get customers that are order uh, US. Made mask, and they're like, hey, I bought it, but it doesn't say KN95. How do I know I got the real thing? And then we have to send them testing data or, you know, spend time kind of from an education standpoint of what the differences are.
2: So just to recap, the N95 is the gold standard.
1: It's a gold standard.
2: Okay. An alternative can be the KN95.
1: With, yes, or, or, or an ear loop respirator or a KN95 style mask. And because and you raise a good point, the thing about N95s is that in a medical or a healthcare environment, you, you are fit tested. And if you think about it, everybody's face is not the same. My face is more round. So you have faces, you have slender faces, you have different sizes of faces. So there's a different style of mask. Like the cup style may not be for me. The pouch style may not be for me. So in a healthcare environment, they're going to fit test to see what the best um, N95 is for that particular you know healthcare worker. And typically, the failure of an N95 is not because of the mask; it's because of the person the that's wearing long. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. like when you put it on, you know, you should be bridging it and making sure that you got a good seal. Um, I typically like to wear a little darker of a beard. I can't grow a full beard like I want to, but <laughs> but when because of now when I'm, I want to make sure I'm wearing a quality mask, I shave closer because if you have a big beard. It's not, you're not going to get the best seal that you can. They recommend that you That's shave the face if you want know. it Yeah. So in the healthcare environment, I mean, like you want to see, you know, the doctors typically, their faces are shaved because they want to get the best seal that they possibly can. And then just finding the best fit. Um, this is another style that I found to be real comfortable. And I think this is the one that they're giving away for free, part of the administration's program. Ah. But it's like a, it's a tri and it's just really breathable. And it comes down under my chin and goes over. It's just a breathable mask if you're going to wear one.
2: But oh, wow. I found myself
1: wearing the uh, the Ear loop respirator, the KN95 style, because it's just I can wear this all day. And we wear it, you know, in the office all day around. Right, that's
2: why I, I buy those in bulk.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yes. These are. So now that this is a, the recommendation from the CDC is that you wear some sort of 9-5 mask, you know, a KN95 style or an N95. N95s, it's not for everybody because you got to get used to breathing in them and getting a good seal on them. K-N95s are more just generally people are used to them, been wearing them forever, so it's not a big struggle.
2: Well, that's comforting. Um, So with the masks being provided by pharmacies and COVID tests being shipped by the U.S. Postal Service, where does Rhino Medical fit into the supply network, if at all? Are you able to provide masks?
1: Yes, we are. Um, So and I think we see it from both ends because we we have a a consumer base where we sell direct to people like you and I that need medical grade equipment. That makes sense. I mean, certain stuff you just don't never need in your house, but like, you know, medical gowns, but gloves and mask and testing is something that we all could use. So from a testing standpoint, these are some of the tests that we we keep in stock and we ship out even from a, this, this box has two tests in it, right. We ship them all over the country and we saw a tremendous response in January, the first of the last week of December, first week of January, when the Omicron variant was really surging like crazy. And this one is found to be more um, transmittable than any other variant that we've seen so far. And then you couldn't find them. So two months ago, you can walk into any Walgreens or Publix or whatever grocery store that you go to and you can find these on the shelves and you literally couldn't find them anywhere. We were working directly with uh, the manufacturer, one of their packagers that were producing 400,000 boxes a day. So we had no issues with a supply chain.
3: And then literally
1: as soon as that website went up, everybody went to that website to claim they're, they're free. I think it's four tests per household. Four tests.
2: That's right. Yeah, And
1: I, I did mine too. And I, I wanted to see, I, I still haven't received it.
2: Neither have I.
1: Yeah. So, so that's going to be a challenge. Cause the thing with testing and COVID, if you have COVID or you have symptoms, you want to know right then and there whether or not you're positive so that you can take the, the next appropriate measures to protect yourself and then others um, from spreading that. So if you're waiting like 10 to 12 days, you know, to get your free test, then you could be over COVID, you could be in the hospital from COVID, or you could you could transmit it to somebody else. So having the ability to be able to get like these type of testing to the general public um, is really important. And then the other piece of it is right now, we've always our core business is selling to institutions, hospital systems, you know, acute and unacute,
2: Right. Is
1: that if the general population is taking and consuming goods, then it's going to create a strain on the supply chain for the institutional people. So like hospitals are finding it more challenging to get the tests they need because all of the, the inventory is being purchased to satisfy the consumers. Right, right. Yeah, so it works both ways. So it's, it's, a, it's a healthy balance to be able to, to make sure that you have enough to supply the people that really need it, the consumers and also the healthcare systems that rely on. And we've been able to, to manage and juggle that pretty well.
2: Do you know if the government is, um, I mean, they haven't used the Defense Act. Do you know if the government is ratcheting up supply so that both the hospital system and the consumers won't be left without?
1: Yeah, um, yes, uh, I know they are. I know just from some of our dealings with some of our partners and vendors is that some of the uh, production is is being uh, used by the government to fulfill those orders. But the other issue too, no matter what, is always going to be, raw materials. So the, the swabs and the cassettes that you need is still, you know, they to my knowledge are still made in, in China. So if there's an, if there's a raw material or supply chain issues on that in that regard, then it's still going to, no matter if you have the capacity to make a bunch of them, you still got to have the raw material to put it together. So that's still a challenge. And then anytime there's, you know, supply and demand, if, if there's a 10 X or 20 X demand, and it puts a stress on the supply chain in general, and right now, that's what everybody's experiencing is is the there's there's such a high demand for testing because i think arguably it's the one um item on earth that literally every human can use (laughs) i mean from literally everybody can test themselves from a baby to everybody and it's non-controversial it's not like vaccines or masks which the fact that that's controversial is a whole different story but Literally, if you're an anti-vaxxer or anti-masker, you still need to test yourself. And they, they do test themselves if they got COVID. So it's the one thing on earth that everybody wants and needs, and then there's not enough of them. So that's, that's creating the challenge that we're in now.
2: OK, well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. According to the CDC, COVID-19 vaccination coverage remains lower in rural counties than in urban counties overall, and among adults age 18 to 64 years. So, what are the attitudes you're seeing regarding vaccine or mask wearing hesitancy? Has it changed in the last six months, or is it the same?
1: To me, um, and and I I would have to speak from like a anecdotal, you know, my opinion because obviously I don't have any scientific data to back it up, but I I feel like it's it's still around the same, and, and I think we still have a lot of like misinformation. There's not a lot of resources. As always, the underserved rural communities is always going to get the toughest part of it just from an access standpoint, whether it be access to information, knowledge, or just being able to go somewhere where they can get the care that they need. So I, I haven't seen much changes on that end. Um, and just, of course, just like listening and hearing and seeing, mm-hmm. it seems like there's still the big divide of what's real and what's not, and if it's helpful or not. And there's a lot of hesitancy. And I think that just, can. It, it, we still need advocates to continue to come out, and champion it and provide accurate information and be able to answer those questions. Now, are they putting those resources in the underserved and rural communities? Probably not, because that's typically the case.
2: That's an excellent um, point.
1: They don't have, even from access to testing, you know, like th- there's not Publix or even sometimes Walmarts and in rural communities. They rely on like Dollar Generals type stores. And if mm. if you can't go to a local store where you have access to masks and access to testing, then it would be hard to get. You might have to travel far to do it. Uh, Or, and then too, from a, just from like a uh, clinical standpoint, having somewhere close that you can go to get treatment and then get advice and to get information, real information is still a challenge in some of these communities.
2: Let's pivot for a second. Do you know of any special accommodations being made for the underserved or those in medical supply deserts? So you just talked about uh, availability in some areas being um, a challenge. And is Rhino Medical working to fill
1: that gap? Yeah, so we have, I, I think this is where really the local folks that are really involved in their community really come into play where you have like boots on the ground. So I can speak to a couple different partnerships. We, have, we work closely with the Minority Affairs Office for, this, for the state of South Carolina and they do an excellent job, an excellent job. In fact, we just donated a couple thousand N95 masks this past Friday. Because they're out in these communities, in these rural, underserved communities, actually doing the people's work and, and giving out, making sure that these people have the resources. So like partnering with agencies like that. Um, and also, like, for instance, uh, I Serve Joy is a, is a nonprofit in Charleston, South Carolina. and She's like such an amazing person. And her life's mission is to help underserved communities. And she doesn't do it for any type of like monetary value. Like that's just what drives her. So when we partner with folks like her who have that presence, um, they have the following and then they have like the ability to get the resources out. That's what it takes is really working with the local nonprofits and people that are really engaged in their communities to help get information and also products out to these to these folks that normally wouldn't have access to them.
2: So let's say you have a large family or your family is nowhere near a pharmacy or post office. What can people do who can't access or run out of the for free masks? Order free COVID tests. How can they protect themselves from the virus?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, and I think part of it is that's where, and it was a battle um, and this is not, this is not for us to get business, but part of the reason why we have a retail consumer site is to do that very thing is for people, no matter what corner of our, our country they're in, that they're able to order online. And then we can ship literally we we've shipped mask and medical products to all 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii. So no matter where you are, if you can't go to a local retail store to get it, then you can find a credible source, whether it be you know getrhinoprotected.com or somebody else, just finding a credible source to get those same supplies. That does exist. Now the challenge it was that we had early on is that you can't market um, you know, like Google didn't allow it. Facebook doesn't allow you to do ads because there's so many bad actors in our space, so many people that they're looking to take advantage of, of just the, the times and they take advantage of the times, the, the mass that they are selling aren't real, they're counterfeit, they're not, they don't have the, the, the appropriate or proper testing data to go with it or standards with it. So, so that's the thing that you have to guard is like finding a credible source that that actually offers these products that you can that you can buy and that you know that you can get shipped to you versus having to rely on driving to the town over or just nowhere close to you to be able to get these same things.
2: Or if you're a senior citizen, having someone that you can rely on to get it for you, because oftentimes they're not mobile themselves. Right.
1: Yep. And that's kind of how our business is. It's mostly like we get a lot of repeat business and, you know, and, and then they spread it and then they like, hey, where did you get your N95 from? And it just kind of happened. So whatever your trusted source is, then you, you can you can use that source. Because the thing about the manufacturers typically don't sell to especially in this, because before now we had no reason to wear N95s. Right.
2: So
1: the manufacturers of these masks really aren't built to sell directly to the to the public. Mm-hmm. So they have to rely on other channels in order to get those medical grade masks that normally doesn't have a really fit for the everyday consumer mm-hmm. um, out to those, to the everyday folk like you and I.
2: Speaking of bad actors, a challenge that I wonder if you could speak to at all is theft. So mail theft, um, pharmacies are being gutted of supplies. Uh, have you experienced in your shipping, have you experienced any um, issues as far as um, people not receiving the products because they're being intercepted? I've seen videos of trucks and trains being robbed, picked clean of their shipments and people just dumping what they don't want. Have you experienced any of that?
1: Yeah, so at a small level, and I think it I think I attribute it more to just that's just the way retail is, especially when you're selling to consumers. So, for instance, our site is a Shopify site, so they're excellent at e-commerce. That's what they are known for. Mm -hmm. So everything down from purchasing labels to getting tracking you get. we, We understand that. We had several instances where we had customers say, hey, I didn't get it. And we're like, well, here's the tracking and it showed up at your door. But if you're saying you didn't get it, I take people for their word. And I think, generally speaking, that you know most people are honest and they're trying to do the right thing. But we've had instances where folks claim they didn't get it. Now, if that's the mail person saying, "Hey, this it this says N95 on the box, I need this," and they and I'm not accusing any male person of doing it, but like I'm sure that can happen. I know or, what you mean. You know, or they they leave packages on the front door, and you know people are always looking, being opportunistic in the wrong way of just taking something that somebody else paid for. So you try to protect yourself, and we do have instances of consumers saying they didn't get it and that the you know the postal service never delivered even if we have tracking information. We don't argue with that. If you say that's what happened, then that's not an open invite to order something from us and then say you didn't get it.
2: <laughs> I had something like that happen to me um, a couple of weeks ago. I, I had an order, uh, they did deliver it because I saw in my surveillance footage, I watched because I got home maybe 15 minutes after the delivery had happened. So I went back through my footage. I was like, well, this just happened. Package should be here. And then I saw that what they did was they tried to hide it between two garbage cans. Uh, And one of those people that comes and gets the bottles and stuff like that out of your garbage, saw it and just took it. it I mean, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even five minutes after the delivery had taken place and from the delivery person's standpoint, I delivered it. I left it at your yep. premises. And from my standpoint, it's you didn't deliver it because you didn't get it to me. Someone intercepted yep. my package. That's why I was curious about what you uh, guys have been experiencing.
1: Yep. As far no, I, I know that's an issue just in general, but and especially when it's a commodity that's that's like this.
2: Has the government indicated whether or not they'll make child size masks available to families or to
1: schools? No, because I was actually on a council call. I think it past Friday when we were kind of talking about that. I think making it available, it's it'll be a big change for a manufacturer just wholesale to start making a child-sized mask because again, in the environment that they're intended to go to, there's no kids that are operating on people or going to, you know, mm-hmm. COVID-infected room doctors or nurses. Mm-hmm. However, again, going back to what we said earlier about everybody having a different. Um, size space and having to fit test. Um, one of our uh, manufacturing partners, Moldex, they're brilliant because they make mask N95s in five different sizes. They make them from extra small, small, medium, large, and then like a, just a regular. So it, it is, you're, guaranteed, you're more likely to fit test because they make different sizes. So to answer your question, there's not like a kid N95 that they're making because it would take a lot. It would have to get approved. They would have to change out the machines. But they're already making smalls that kids could wear. And then, again, going back to Demi tech, because my, my babies, every day they go to, to school, they wear a kid version of a KN95 style mask.
2: Same here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's what I send them to school with. So and they And they do a really good job of keeping it on. Um, it's funny because my daughter, she's in competition gymnastics. And she'll wear that thing during the meet. And we're like, you can take it off while you're competing. But like, we say keep it on, she keeping it on. Like,
2: no, I'm good. Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> like, baby, you can pull your, you can take it off so you can breathe, you know. But um, so yeah, so they make kid style K and nine five mask. I think that's probably the the best that we can get until, you know, it makes sense. Because eventually the pandemic will be over and then you've invested a lot to making like a style of mask that, that kids typically aren't going to need past COVID. So I think there's there's ways to get around it, getting a smaller version of a, a mask or a kid version of a KN and 5-style mask.
2: Well, that's very optimistic of you. So you think that at some point that we will not have to deal with COVID?
1: I hope. I mean, I think uh, I can't say it's going to be this year. I think the challenge that we have compared to like other places is that other governments say this is it and I don't care about your feelings where um, one of the beautiful things about America is that people have the ability to, to disagree and until we get to the point where everybody can agree that masks work <laughs> which is a baseline thing like if we can agree just with the science behind it that it actually works then it's going to be challenging because it's going to always there's always going to be vulnerable people that's going to get it it's going to keep mutating and spreading so I, one day we'll get there. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I, I think um, I don't even know what life past COVID will look like or what the new normal is going to be. Me personally, I'm so used to wearing masks that during flu season, I'll probably wear a mask for the rest of my life because I don't enjoy being sick with anything. <laughs> so if it protects me against the flu outside of COVID, then I'm cool with wearing a mask around a bunch of people. I'm used to it now. It's not like a stigma at this well- point.
2: Well, let me tell you, I tend to agree with you, although my 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 view is much more protracted. But I agree with you. I agree that that we will get to a point where I don't think it'll be over, but I think it'll be just part of our It's regular, part of... It's yes. Part of of
1: We were... I mean, we kind of joke and we say... I mean, everybody can remember the days where someone is in the office coughing and sneezing and you can... They're obviously sick. And one of you's like, are you okay? Like, I think I got the flu. And you're like, well, go home. But... And you, you know, just like, now that's well,
2: the best thing you can hope it, for. Like, oh, you you know, like, that's the flu? Okay. <laughs>
1: that bug is going to spread around the office and everybody's going to take turns being sick. And now with COVID is different. But I mean, the, the goal and why the vaccinations are so important is that yeah. it's not like you can't not get COVID from being vaccinated, but the goal is not to die from COVID or to be hospitalized because of COVID. And if we can get to the point where we're like, all right, at some point it's going to find you, there's going to be cases where, you know, unfortunately people are going to. Um, succumb to that. But by and large, the data shows it now, the the folks that are taking up hospital beds are unvaccinated. And we got to get to the point where we're not overrunning our hospitals and healthcare workers with COVID patients, because there's still other elements that need to be treated that they can't even find a room for. And I have firsthand perspective because my wife is a a clinical pharmacist that works on the ICU. Mm -hmm. And the, the EDs are full of people that are sick that need beds but can't get it because COVID patients are taking them up. So that's the thing is that I think once it gets to the point where the stress and the strain on the hospital system is not bad or as bad, then we probably can learn to live with it. Maybe, I don't know, that's just my personal thoughts.
2: And aren't they canceling, they're still, they're canceling um, procedures.
1: Yes, okay. Because
2: they don't have the resources to to do them because they have to manage the caseload. load.
1: And that's all. And that's how a lot of, I would say, most hospitals. That's where they make money, right? If mm-hmm. you're not able to do elective procedures, then it's going to be really hard to stay in business. And another thing that has nothing to do with testing or mask. One, you know, one of the hardest items right now to find is crutches. Really, crutches because Why is of that? The, the bent aluminum and the crutches. There's like a shortage, and everybody gets there to get it from the same place. So there's a, there's a tremendous shortage of crutches and the back orders are like until the, the forecast is until the end of next year, until, uh, until the end of this year, until it'll start sort itself out. However, we brought in two containers of crutches and we could literally, you could walk in off the street in December to any hospital and say, Hey, I have crutches and they would buy them from you. That's how bad it was. But to your point, because of, them not doing as many elective based surgeries, they don't. The need for crutches in this moment is not as great. However, as soon as those wow. elective based procedures turn back on, then the crutches is going to be an issue.
2: It's it's a, an incredible how many areas of medicine are touched by by just wow. Well, Lance Brown, CEO of Rhino Medical Supplies. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time.
0: It's official. Summer is almost here. The sun is getting brighter, the days are getting longer, and your lawn is ready for some love. Get everything you need for a season spent outside with Memorial Day savings from The Home Depot. Manicure your yard to perfection with lawn care tools from RYOBI. Then get your garden going with vegetables and herbs from Bonnie Plants Harvest Select, plus mulch and soil from Vigoro and EarthGrow. Get your lawn as ready as you are for summer in the sun. Feels like Memorial Day at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.